0: read a story this week. When politicians changed their position on an issue, midstream, what's that called? A flip-flop. It's called Monday. It's called normal. Uh, It's called a flip-flop. Now that term actually was coined regarding U.S. President Grover Cleveland in 1880 goes back that far, it goes back over 100 years. The issue at hand was that uh, President Cleveland made a compromise with the United Kingdom on fishing rights in the waters off Canada, and it signaled a change in promised policy, and it really made the fishermen in New England uh, mad, uh, the, the, the fishing industry up there. And so a fallout of this political concession was a New York Tribune writer calling the President Cleveland's action a fisheries flip-flop. And the fishery part got dropped, but the flip-flop part stuck. It brings to mind the way a fish will flip and flop on the deck of a boat. The phrase caught on. Now, since that time, flip-flopping has been kind of stock and trade, hasn't it, for politicians, right? Now, So when we use terms like, axioms like, talk is cheap, we're talking about the potential for somebody to flip-flop. When we say, uh, actions speak louder than words, you've said that before, I bet. Uh, We're talking about, are you going to follow through on what you told me you're going to do? Now, we're going to start this few weeks study of the book of James today, which is tucked in to the end of your New Testament. Um, James is going to have a lot to say about the issue of assuring that our faith professions are matched by consistent action. Now, you know that. You pray for me over the next three, four, or five weeks that I'll get this right, because you've heard it so much. I mean, I, I struggled this week with just trying to Trying to say this in a different way. So let, let's see what we can do. We're going to start in chapter two and we're going to read uh, verse 14, 15, and 16. We're going to start in chapter two and go from there. Um, and then, I'm, I'm, Steve Blair, if I can get you to read, then I'm going to back up and give a little bit of background from there. Would you mind to read 14, 15, and 16? Okay, now I want you to go back. Um, with that kind of background, which is kind of the thematic portion of this whole book, I want you to go back to 1 1, take a look at it, and just scan it, okay, and see what it says as an introduction to the book. And let me see if I can, can unpack it just a little bit as we go. It identifies the author, who is whom? James. Who identifies himself in what way? Servant of God and Christ Jesus, right? Okay, now, let's talk about that for a minute because there's at least three Jameses in the New Testament that are identified there. We've got to make sure we're talking about the right one. Um, uh, If James is who I believe he is, his introduction of himself in 1-1 is really interesting. Now, Two of the original 12 apostles were James's. all right? Remember James and John, brothers, their dad's name was what? Zebedee. So they were the Zebedee boys, okay? They were sometimes called the Sons of Thunder, remember that? Uh, that that has picturesque thoughts behind it, kind of tells you what kind of guys those guys were. Um, but if you'll look with me, if you kind of turn back a little bit to... Um, uh, Acts 12, I mean, the, their ident- James is identified all over the New Testament as one of the, one of the 12. He was actually one of the inner, uh, the inner uh, circle of the 12. But if you look at Acts 12, look at the first couple of verses of Acts 12. Now, about the time that Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Probably not that James. He was off the scene pretty early uh, by violent means. The first of the apostles. He was not the first Christian martyr, but he was the first of the apostles to be put to death by the sword at the hands of Herod, okay? Now, so it's probably not that one. There's another one identified in all the lists of, um, of the apostles. His name is uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, or what else is he called some places? James the less. How would you like to be? uh, I'm. That's James, and I'm the other James. That's kind of you know. Uh, his James. You remember the guy. This is my brother Daryl, and my other brother Daryl. He, he was kind of. How would you like to be the other brother James? That's this guy. Uh, the less doesn't necessarily mean he was shorter than uh, than James, the the son of Zebedee. But but anyway, he's always called that. But since there's not a whole lot said about him in the rest of the text of the New Testament, it's probably not James the son of Alphaeus that's identified here. Now, I find it intriguing that James, the writer of the book of James, doesn't really identify himself other than being a servant or a bondservant, which is a slavery term, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um... Most likely, traditionally, we believe that this James is the James that was the half-brother of Jesus himself. Now, go, to, uh, go with me to Mark 6, 3. Okay, we were in uh, Acts a minute ago. Let's go to Mark 6. Now, there are some traditions that don't acknowledge that Mary had other children. Okay, um, besides Jesus, uh, this verse kind of blows that a little bit away. Is not this, the carpenter, it's talking about Jesus, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Sounds like he had at least four brothers, right? Are not his sisters here with us. So there were other children. Okay, so. Uh, there's some thought there, and there's, there, there are explanations of that, but I choose to kind of just take this at face value here. So um, so Jesus did have brothers, and one of them was James, and we believe that it was probably this James. Look in John 7. This is intriguing to me. John 7, verse 5, another place where it talks about the siblings of Jesus. Now, we've got to say the half-siblings of Jesus, why? They shared a mother, but not a father, okay? Joseph was an adoptive father. Who was the father of Jesus? God the father, okay? That's the whole story of the incarnation from Christmas. So, um, um, so uh, in, in John 7, verse 5, an interesting little detail is dropped in here. It's talking about his brothers and their action and his family um, um, as he is coming out in ministry. And look at verse 5, John 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So we know that if James is included in this list, and we believe he was, that at one time James didn't even believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But we also know from the book of Acts that he's included as a leader in the church. So there's something that's changed. Paul identifies it in the first several verses of 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul talks about all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus after the resurrection, okay, Uh, including to 500 people at one time. And Paul says, by the way, he also appeared to James. He's singled out there. Wouldn't you love to have a video of that encounter? If he was not previously a believer and Jesus says, do you believe me now? I think I would be inclined to, to do so. Now, so what would James' life, if he was Jesus, if Jesus was his older half-brother, what would his life have been like? Think about the this famous sets of brothers that you're aware of. One who lives in the shadow of another. Okay. Think of um, uh, Peter and Andrew. How much do you know about Andrew? Not a whole lot. You know some. But you know a whole lot about Peter. It was always, he was always identified as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Okay. I'm going I'm to identify myself a little bit here. I feel a little bit the same way about Eli Manning, okay? Eli, the brother of Peyton, okay? Now, I realize he's been a Super Bowl MVP, but Peyton's uh, kind of a different story, right? Okay, at least in my opinion, all right? So we got that throughout history. Can you think of others where one brother kind of stood out more than the other? Billy and Jimmy Carter, that's a great example. (laughs) See, now, okay, I've never even heard of Paul Dean, but I remember listening to Dizzy calling the Yankee games on Saturdays when I was a kid. Yeah, he was with uh, Pee Wee Reese and Dizzy Dean. Probably the greatest baseball announcers ever. Yeah, yeah, but you know a lot about Dizzy. I don't remember Paul Dean, but he, he was probably a pretty good player at some point. Okay. I'm sorry? Well, Who? I don't know if she's got sisters or not. I know she's got sons. Okay, so you get the point. Now, so the idea here is you've got Eli and Peyton, you've got Andrew and Peter, and you've got James and his brother, God. Okay, Paul, am am I being disrespectful here? I'm just saying, who's your brother? Well, my brother's God. Can you imagine how it would be to live in that? With that, okay. But I, when I read uh, Chuck Swindoll and others write biographically about James, I realize what an amazing person he became. Uh, literally, the he had a corner on faith in the early church. Uh, by the time we get to Acts 15, it's we better check in with James and see what he has to say about this because he's so wise. He becomes known in Christian history as James the Just. And the story is told that he spent so much of his life every day in prayer that his knees were destroyed. And he beca- they began to call him affectionately old camel knees. Now take a look at a camel's knees and you'll understand that. And that, that was this James. So I think he's in a position to talk to us about faith. What do you think? And so he's going to do that. Now, where Steve began to read in verse 14, his style, a lot of the the style of his writing is to pose a question and then kind of answer it. Here he's going to pose a couple of questions in verse 14. But what would you say as you read verse 14 is kind of the underlying question. Say it again, Cindy. Can you have faith without deeds? deeds? That's a good way to put it. Um, One way we might put it is faith without deeds works faith at all. Can I even call it faith if there's not a works evidence? To it. So, we're going to kind of deal with that question. Now, look at verse 15. He's talking here. He, he begins to kind of put this in terms of examples, and he gives us a real world, world example in verse 15. What's the example? Somebody who's hungry. And it says unclothed, but what you need to understand, think about this in terms of a coat. This is a person who's going through a, going through a day like today without a coat. Um, and so, um, well, you and I need to frame this for the rest of this discussion, certainly as it is in context of verse 15, is it's talking about brothers and sisters. Okay. What, what that means for our discussion here is um, it's talking about someone. Uh, See, it's a brother or sister. It, in, in, in simple terms, he's not talking about someone outside the church. He's talking about somebody in the family of faith that you and I ought to be taking care of. He's talking about those in the congregation. Okay, so it's some. For our purposes, it's somebody in here who has a need. We find out about it, and we just kind of turn um, a, a deaf ear to it. Uh, the idea here is it's going to the heart of how we in the church will take care of each other. It has other implications to it, but that's where it starts. It's how how will we take care of each other? And so in verse 16, um, uh, there's kind of this idea that failure to help a brother or sister means something is wrong with a person's faith. I was downtown this week for a meeting, and it was kind of a nice day. And as I'm going to my car, uh, a fellow approached me, and he's got a little dog on the end of a rope. Okay. Makeshift leash. And uh, the, the guy seems, you know, pretty chirpy, pretty happy, and the dog seems pretty happy. But he approaches me as I'm getting my car. I've got a suit and tie on. And he says, Hey man, could you help me? I'm trying to get some food for the dog. Okay, now, okay, uh, I, I'm just telling you about the blackness of my heart, and this has bothered me ever since then. I did not respond to his need. But I did say to him, okay, uh, look look at verse 16 here. It's interesting. Uh, the the wording is, and I had already been studying this passage for a couple of days by then. Okay. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Now you could say um, that part of your motivation for not responding to, to the need was uh, he was asking for money to feed the dog. Uh, okay. Okay. That was part of what was going on with my head. But I literally said, God bless you, man, but no. Isn't it interesting, the wording here, verse 16, is something like, God bless you, now leave me alone. Am I right? I'm guilty. Now, this wasn't one of you in this group. I'd like to think I would think dif- I would respond differently with one of you. If Skip came to me asking me for for dog food for the dog, I think I would figure that out. Okay. God bless you, but okay, now leave me alone. Have you ever said that? I literally said it this week. I didn't say the "leave me alone" part. I'm, I'm better than that. Okay. <laughs> Now remember here, we're dealing with family. So let's go on. John, can I get you to read verse 17, 18, and 19? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Boy, this is really getting good here. Uh, Cindy, can I get you to go to Deuteronomy 1511 in just a minute? Deuteronomy 1511, okay? James has got a verdict here. He says, faith that lacks compassion, he says, is dead. And what I want you and I to understand is this condemning statement is actually consistent with the law, which he's kind of going after here. The first five books of the Bible – uh, concludes with the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is kind of a restating of the law. And here's one of those places where the Old Testament sounds amazingly like the New Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, 11. There in the Old Testament... You're going to have poor people with you? Take care of them, the Bible says. So the idea here that James says, in just no in certain terms, is faith that it lacks compassion is dead, he's going to say. Faith alone without action is just kind of hollow, like a dead body. He's going to compare it to a dead body a couple of times here. And then in verse 18, he begins to shift. So he says, Okay, so if you say you've got faith, but there's no action, then your faith is actually, I'm going to call it dead. But then in verse 17, uh, 18, I'm sorry, he's going to shift to the thought of the person who says, okay, you know what? Um, I don't believe this stuff like you do. In fact, I'm not really sure I believe in God. But I'm doing some good things. Okay. It's interesting that that James doesn't let us off the hook either way. The person who has kind of no faith, but they're really big into social justice. Uh, It might say to me, if we we got into an argument about things theological, uh, you might come through that and say, okay, but you don't really believe in God. No, but I'm doing some really good things. I give to the right things. I'm involved in the right kind of things. And so it's kind of this idea that um, um, I am acting even though I have no faith, at least like you proclaim to have faith. And so James is going to say that faith and works are not really in conflict. Instead, we could actually call them partners. My question is God faithful? Bring a book by Lucato. And he talks about faith in God as your father. This is a great analogy. Think of it this way, he says Suppose your dad is the world's foremost orthopedic surgeon. People travel from distant countries for him to treat them. Regularly, he exchanges damaged joints for healthy ones. With the same confidence that a mechanic changes spark plugs, your dad removes and replaces hips and knees and shoulders. But at the age of 10, you're a bit too young to comprehend the accomplishments of a renowned surgeon, but you're not too young to stumble down the stairs and twist your ankle. You roll and writhe on the floor and scream for help. You're weeks away from your first school dance. There's no time for crutches, no time for limping. You need a healthy ankle. Yours is anything but. Into the room walks your dad, still wearing his surgical scrubs. He removes your shoe, peels back your sock, and examines the injury. You groan at the sight of a tennis ball-sized bump. Adolescent anxiety kicks in. Dad, I'll never walk again. Yes, you will. No one can help me. I can. No one knows what to do. I do. No, you don't. So your dad lifts his head and asks you a question. Do you know what I do for a living? Actually, you don't. You know he goes to the hospital every day. You know the people call him doctor. Your mom thinks he's smart, but you really don't know what your father does. So he says, as he places a bag of ice on your ankle, it's time for you to learn. The next day, he's waiting for you at the school parking lot after classes. Hop in. I want you to see what I do. He drives you to his hospital office and shows you the constellation of diplomas on his wall. Adjacent to them is a collection of awards that include words like distinguished and honorable. He hands you a manual of orthopedic surgery that bears his name. You wrote this? I did. His cell phone rings. After the call, he announces, we're off to surgery. You scrub up and follow him into operating room on your crutches. During the next few minutes, you have a ringside seat for a procedure in which he reconstructs an ankle. He's the commandant of the operating room. He never hesitates or seeks advice. He just does it. One of the nurses whispers, your dad is the best. As the two of you ride home that evening, you look at your father, you see him in a different light. If he can conduct orthopedic surgery, he can likely treat a swollen ankle. So you ask, you think I'll be okay for the dance? Yeah, you'll be fine. This time you believe it. Your anxiety decreases as your understanding of your father increases. Here's what I think. Our biggest fears are sprained ankles to God. My question is, how faithful is God? How much faith have you placed in him? That is all important. And James is not discounting that here in chapter 2. Look at verse 19. This is interesting to me. I've used this verse a lot. Okay, you believe, and you believe in only one God. He refers to um, Deuteronomy 6.4, which is foundational for every Jew in history um, uh, since the writing, certainly, of of the book of Deuteronomy. It's the idea that, here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So it's this foundational belief in one God. It's at the heart of Jewish faith. So he says, you believe in one God? That's great. Good. So does the devil. Isn't it interesting that the devil is not conflicted about that at all? The devil and his minions all believe there is one God. Go check out Most books at Barnes and Noble, and you'll find a degree of all kinds of answers to that question about who God is and how many gods there are and how many paths there are to the God, to whatever God is. The devil is not conflicted about that. But we know also that the devil and his minions have no good in them. What a genius way to look at this. The devil has no good in him, yet he believes. His minions have no good in them, yet he believe, they believe. Do you believe in one way? So does the devil. He's just trying to convince a lot of people there's lots of other ways. Okay, now let's go on. To verse 20. John, can I come back to you and have you read 20 down through 26? And we'll kind of move toward the finish here. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without Jesus is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his have sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith. This is masterful. We go with a, somebody Find Hebrews eleven 19. We're going to go there in just a minute. It's a recounting in the New Testament of what Abraham does. He's going, um, uh, James is going to give some examples. He's going to begin with Abraham. He's going to talk about the interaction of faith and, and uh, works or faith and action, faith and deeds, and how they work together here. Um, now, I had to ask myself the question this week. This is not in Genesis 22 where this story is originally told about Abraham taking his son Isaac and being willing to offer him as a sacrifice because God said to do so. That's what's being referenced here. I've been troubled by that story my entire life. If, when we got some more time, I'll tell you about what I think about it. But, but here's the issue. Abraham did as God asked him to do based on his faith. Now, there's a detail that is not in Genesis that is indicated as the Hebrews writer applies it Who'll read Hebrews 1 19? Thank you, Sally. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac him back from the dead. That is not taught in Genesis. That is applied in Hebrews 11. The thought that if Isaac was lost, <coughs> that he would come back. That God could also raise him back to life. What a crazy, uh, wonderful faith statement here. But it's this idea. Abraham is called, he's called a friend of God. That implies to me that our statements of faith our, whether or not we believe is more about a relationship than it is about just a transaction. Did I say the right words? Did I pray the right prayer? Did you say them out loud to me right so I could repeat them back uh, right? It's a lot more about a relationship than uh, it is about just a transaction here. James goes on to say that true faith is gonna cause correct. Behavior. He never minimizes the importance of faith, but he says true faith equals doing something. Then he gives us another example. The example from the book of Joshua of Rahab. It identifies her in verse 25 as a harlot. I find that's very interesting that even after her faith story is told that she's identified uh, in this way. It indicates to me kind of like Simon the leper as identified in the New Testament. He's the former leper. She's the former harlot, but here, this was part of her story. If you read in the second chapter of Joshua about her, when she first comes forth, that she tells in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Joshua 2, she tells her faith story. I've heard about the crossing of the Red Sea. I've heard about uh, how God has been with you and I believe. Now will you save me, she says. What a tremendous thing that she does. And she acts on it by saving the spies that, are, that she hides, and they in turn save her. But it's all about what she admits, what she says, her statement of faith. And he'll finish up then By talking about, in verse 26, using an analogy about faith without action is like a body without breath. I read in my quiet time this week, Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel sees the valley of dry bones. And the bones kind of start rattling and coming together. You remember that story? And they get some sinew on them, some muscle on them, and some skin covers them, and they're still dead. Why? There's no breath. And he invokes, the Lord invokes breath. He breathes breath into them. So the idea of faith without works is like a body without breath. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and then I'm going to apply it in the last couple of minutes that are left. I believe what James is trying to say, and by the way, we'll be in chapter 3, keeping, we'll, we'll keep going with this next week. We can never be saved by works. I, 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 I want to be really clear about that. I think James is really clear about that. But we cannot be saved without them. You may, like me, have read uh, a book that had an impact on you from five or six years ago by the, by Bob Goff called Love Does. Heard of the book? Not, I recommend it. It really makes this point of getting involved in works. Um, he doesn't really apply it as, as a, a treatise on the book of James. He's just talking about some things God has motivated him to do. And it's an excellent, uh, some stories and, and uh, uh, a life philosophy. So could I say it this way? As I think about James 1 and 2. Faith works. Remember we started this day talking about stuff that you buy that doesn't work. Faith works. Okay? Could I say it another another way? Am I more interested in doing well or doing good? We have a little adage that we do, that we use at MacU uh, that was coined actually by... A, by a former communications director, and it was just a stroke of genius, in my, my opinion, when, when she wrote for us once. We don't want our students just to do well. We want them to do good. The grammar in that is intentional. Are you doing are you interested in doing well? Are you interested in doing good? So Maybe as, as you apply these first couple of chapters, and certainly James 2 beginning with verse 14 this week, maybe it would be good for you in your quiet time to say to God, okay, a lot of times, Lord, I'm coming to you saying, am I doing well? Am I doing okay? It's, it's a trip to the doctor, and uh, he puts a thermometer in your mouth, and he takes your uh, respiration, and they take your blood pressure and all that stuff, and they say, you know, General, you're doing pretty well. By the way, my doctor never says that. It's, it's a wellness check. Are you doing well? We ask that question all the time. What I'm going to ask you to ask over this period of time that we're spending in the book of James is to ask yourself, am I doing good?